You're listening to the Long's Chapel Weekly Message Podcast, available Sundays at 5 o'clock p.m. If you would like to connect to Long's Chapel or keep up with all events happening at Long's Chapel Church, connect with us via Instagram, Facebook, or on our church website, longschapel.com. Here at Long's Chapel, we believe in worshiping and serving God by reaching people and growing together as passionate followers of Jesus Christ, because all people matter to God. This week's message comes from our lead pastor, Reverend Chris Westmoreland. Love it. I want to celebrate that. Um, next week, friends, we have an opportunity to start a new sermon series. Um, it's actually called Joy in the Morning. Anybody need a little more joy in their life? Woohoo! So we're going to have a good time talking about that. It's actually really themes of like healing and, and reconciliation and, and restoration and forgiveness. Healing is this major theme throughout the scriptures. In fact, if you took the theme of healing out of the Bible, the, the way we understand the Bible today, we, we, wouldn't actually have, um, we wouldn't actually have the story that we have if you tried to take the theme of healing out of the scriptures. And so um, thank God that God is who God is and God knows what we need. And so the next few weeks, we'll have an opportunity to talk about that. But today, I wanted the chance to kind of wrap up what we've, what we've been uh, talking about and praying about over the last several weeks. Uh, and that's like playing like champions. And that's primarily out of the David and Goliath story. So we've been spending a good bit of time um, right around 1 Samuel 17. And so um, it's a rather lengthy chapter and we've kind of covered it uh, verse by verse and different nuances and parts of the story. Um, and so I just want to invite us just into like that story for a little bit of reflection and then one or two kind of things that we didn't get a chance to talk about um, throughout the Play Like a Champion series. And so that's what we're doing uh, a little a little encore today. Um, I want to start with this image that's in my head and my heart. I, I didn't go back and look at pictures of last time I was in the Holy Land. I could have done that, but I'm actually okay with sharing like from my heart uh, to your heart, something of what it was like um, for me to, for the very first time really, to appreciate in some kind of personal way, the important figure that King David actually was uh, in Jewish history and is in, in our understanding of who God is and how God has moved and worked in the world. I remember um, being in the Holy Land and the first time I went to the Holy Land, I didn't get to experience this, but the last time that I went, I did where we actually got to go into what they call David's tomb. And it's kind of um, believed to be um, kind of like the oldest part of the old city of Jerusalem. Um, a kind of an amazing setting in that place. I don't know why I remember this, but the kids in the room will get a giggle out of this. I remember that they they had um, like a little bit of what a bathroom 3,000 years ago would have looked like. Um, like, and so they had like, like a toilet, like a 3,000 year old toilet there. I, I, I expected at least the adult kids in the room to laugh at that. Because anyway, I'm, I won't carry that any further. But, but it was interesting to me that seeing 3,000-year-old stuff, seeing literally where, where David lived, where he like, clearly spent some really important time. A lot of the dig that's still happening there is uncovering um, some pretty significant um, archaeological um, finds from that particular era uh, when, of course, David actually came and, and helped to reunify uh, Israel by making Jerusalem the capital. And then, of course, we know that the temple gets built just after that and really significant point. But what, what blew me away about this particular experience is there's this one room that you go into um, and there is what they call is the tomb of David. Um, there's some thoughts that like David's body may not actually be there because biblically it's recorded elsewhere and that's fine. Uh, they don't actually talk about whether David's body is there or not. They talk about this being a room where folks can come and remember the legacy and the impact and the importance of King David's life. And what I remember in walking into that room 
what I remember in observing the fact that they have um, what would be like an Orthodox Jewish man who um, would rotate with other folks, but like 24-7, there would always be somebody that would be sitting there on behalf of the Jewish nation praying in celebration and thanksgiving for David's life and for his witness. And I remember when I, when I entered that room and when I had that experience at that place, I... I felt, um, the only thing that equated that particular experience to me is like when I went to the Wailing Wall. When you go to the Western Wall, and of course it's the only like literal remaining part of, of what was the temple that was built on, on that space, on Mount Moriah. And, and I remember that, that evokes, when you see that, when you stand there, when you experience that, it just evo- evokes a very specific um, emotion in your heart, as you can imagine. And, and that's kind of like what I experienced in that, in that David's tomb room. Um, and for like one of the first times, I really appreciated this. This is the point that I'm getting to in rather long uh, illustration. Um, it is the reason I think that folks um, in the Jewish tradition observe David in such a significant and reverent and sacred way is that I think they stand in that room realizing that so much of what they understand Israel and, and Judaism to be wouldn't be in the way that they know it and have lived it and understand it had it not been for David and his faithfulness and it had it not been for, for what God was doing uh, in, in and through David's life um, that David was, was open to most of the time. There was such, such reverence. So like I say that to invite you into a bit of a wondering and a curiosity with me. Like what if, what if David had stayed on that shepherd's hill what if David had like, never actually followed um, a calling to actually go be on that battlefield with the Philistines and, and that particular battle with Goliath? Like, like, what if that part of the story hadn't happened? And what if the next part of the story hadn't happened? And, and what if like all we know that was accomplished throughout, throughout David's lifetime, what if that hadn't been? What if he had stayed on that shepherd's hill? What if um, he hadn't been anointed? Or what if he had been anointed but said no to, to God? Like, like, what if he didn't listen to God's voice to step up and to stand on a battlefield with a giant that was three times his size, that was skilled in battle in a way well beyond his? Like, like he didn't just kind of slip onto the battlefield. He actually had to fight the will of the king who seemingly doesn't want to put him there to be able to get a chance to be the underdog that he knew he was feeling called to be so that he could actually help declare victory on God's behalf in this particular moment. And there's some really important things that I don't have a ton of time to talk about, about what are going to kind of shoot from this moment. But this moment is a foundational moment, not only, right, not only in David's life, but really um, in Judeo-Christian history. I mean, these are really important moments where, like, like David's friendship with Jonathan, who's King Saul's son. It's a significant aspect of his life. And like there's something modeled in their friendship that really does define something of true friendship, that we don't have a ton of those examples described in, in that amount of depth throughout the, the, the story of the scriptures. And we have that story. What if like his troubled relationship with King Saul, like like what if somehow like, like, like we're able to build on the gift of him having to lean into that tension and that challenge almost every day and in almost every season. Uh, if you know something about the David story, King Saul actually tried to have him killed, um, actually like twice. Uh, so like what if 
You know, what, what if like that had succeeded? Well, it, it didn't succeed. There was a larger story at work. There was a larger story at play. David will reunite the divided kingdom. He'll claim Jerusalem as capital. And by bringing the ark, like the ark of the covenant right there, um, this is obviously before Indiana Jones found it, right? The ark of the covenant there uh, is this primary symbol of the identity of, of this people, that the, this people, this group of people are always gonna be people of the word. And, and that somehow that's what those commandments resting in that ark, resting in that city um, where this nation is gonna be built from that place, that's what that symbolizes, that's what that means. Um, David's hero status is going to seem to be enhanced and not diminished by the fact that, that he's real. And the Bible actually doesn't like clean up some of David's realness. If you know some of the rest of David's story, you know that it's the stuff that you know, had David not been a relatively mature person of faith at, at, the, at the end of his life, this is the kind of stuff that he would have liked to have had kind of washed out of his story. Um, but there were times in his life where he was blind uh, to sinfulness and, and he will like sleep with a soldier's wife and then he'll have a soldier placed on the front lines of battle, pretty much dishonoring like every commandment that is held in that ark that he's longing to build the nation on the foundation of. And yet, that's not the end of his story. Like, like David understood that victory in God was something bigger than the battle. Do you understand that? That David somehow knows that like there's this bigger battle, there's this war, there's this like whole big cosmic thing that's happening and just because you're losing one battle doesn't mean the war is lost? And in David's own life, it's really easy. It would have been really easy for him uh, to throw up a bit of a white flag, especially in like a couple of really challenging seasons in his life. But what happens out of that is that we get to very much see his soul broken open and we very much get to see the fact that um, in those moments, there's restoration that happens. Um, there's like a, a, a reverence for God that's reclaimed in those moments. And, and because God isn't really about demanding perfection, but God who's way more interested in a relationship that's grounded in honesty and trust. Can I say that again? Because that feels like a really important takeaway for us. For, for a God that's not like one and done, like, like, like holiness really matters to God, right? Righteousness really matters to God, especially uh, from leaders. And yet God isn't demanding perfection, but, but God is like staking everything on a relationship that's grounded in, in honesty and, and in trust. So, so security for God, it, it doesn't come from people always doing what they should do. Just like probably no parent or grandparent in this room, the security of their relationship is only grounded in whether this morning their child or their grandchild did exactly what they told them to do. Like, like, thankfully, the relationship is bigger than one decision. Thankfully, the relationship is bigger than one moment. And it seems as if God knows this. It seems as, as if David is learning this. And, and like, I don't know if you've noticed this, but I bet you have if you're, you like, pay attention to any news cycles, uh, especially in politics. Do you notice that, that the worst crimes aren't the original crime, but the worst crimes actually come from the cover-up of the original crime? Have you kind of noticed that part of the story? And, and in David, Psalm 51, that's his cover-up. 
That's his cover-up plan. His cover-up plan isn't dishonesty. His cover-up plan is, is confession with the only one who can make it right. Like, God, against you and against you alone have I sinned. In other words, God, if I can't make this right with you, I can't make this right with anybody, it's got to start with you. Have mercy on me, God, because I, I'm a sinner. Like, that's what the king says. He, he returns to his roots and finds an opportunity for redemption in a moment where, on the surface, um, it was all thrown away. And God does some amazing stuff in, in those moments, especially when we can adapt uh, that underdog mindset. Um, so like David's gonna know hardship, right? He's gonna know hardship from every turn. He's gonna know hardship in all kinds of different ways. But, but we have the book of Psalms, which is attributed to David um, because the prayer and the praise um, that, that was written and captured there, which was actually originally in Hebrew po poetry and songs, like Hebrew hymns, this is prayer and praise that was offered to God in some significant way, but was meant to be real. It wasn't staged. It wasn't pretend. It wasn't like, you do this. It was like, this is the journey that we're on, and this is the God that we're called to serve. The rest of David's earthly life, as you continue 1 Samuel and the rest of the places in the scriptures where it talks about David's life, David's son Solomon is going to take over the throne. He'll be known for building God's temple. He'll be known for the wisdom that he possesses. And Jesus must come from the line of David. Jesus must come from Bethlehem in order to be the Messiah. Just think about that for a minute. So Jesus is an extension of, of all of these stories that we're talking about that somehow in the scriptures, this is the line from which Jesus must come to be able to be the Messiah that God is raising him up to be for the redemption and salvation of the world. And something you may or may not know, Jesus will lead his disciples in the Last Supper in an upper room. Do you know why um, Jesus is gonna be in an upper room? Do you know what's in the lower part of the room? What's the lower room of the upper room where Jesus has the Last Supper with his disciples? Upper to what? David's tomb. Yeah, David's tomb. Like, like, why? Because the greatest power revealed in, in the crucifixion moment that we encounter with Jesus will be to somehow affirm that everything that happens, even if what's happening is really not the will of God, everything that happens, if we can have trust and provision from God in the midst of those things that are happening, that God can do a redeeming work in and through what's happening. That's, friends, that's David's story. Friends, that's, that's our story. And, and I just have to ask, as we're kind of spending our time talking a bit about even just this David and Goliath story, I just have to ask like, what if, what if all of this, what if all of this hadn't happened? Um, what, what if it hadn't happened? Like God would have no doubt found another way to bring about redemption, but that's not the way that God chose to bring about redemption. This messy, challenging, imperfect people and story are the way that God chooses to somehow continue to redeem a pretty imperfect, pretty messed up, pretty wayward group of folks like us. I hope you're not offended by me calling you that. I'm actually lopped in with you as that messy group. Um, anybody take pride in their messiness? Uh, no. Anybody, anybody take pride in their messiness? 
Yes, I, I want to invite you to, um, to, to celebrate that. So a, as we think and pray a little bit about David's story, uh, I, want to, I want to touch, very briefly, I want to touch three things about this story. Uh, number one, part of what David's story teaches me is this. It teaches me um, that God is not just setting you up for some future like declaration of victory that's going to happen in something like that God is working in your life right where you are and God's inviting you, God's inviting you to, to use what you have, to use what you have. How, how many of us friends spend a lot of time in our life thinking about what we would do if, what we would do if we had this or what would we do if we had that or what would we do if we had been fortunate enough to have been born as this person or man, like I'm ready to do that for God, but God hasn't given me this yet to do that. And, and what's so amazing about the David and Goliath story uh, is this piece that we talked about last week where Goliath is gonna come forward in all this like incredible warfare armor, stuff that really only the giant Goliath could even carry. But even he, all this stuff is really gonna slow him down. It's really gonna make things hard. It's gonna offer some protection, but it's also gonna reveal some significant vulnerabilities. And uh, well, King Saul tries to outfit David in exactly the same way. And David's like, no. David's like, I'm going to use what I have. I, I'm gonna use what God has already given me. I'm gonna dress in the tunic that I normally dress, um, not on the battlefield, but actually on, uh, in the shepherd's field because that's where I've done most of my battle and I'm gonna do that. He's gonna turn down the big armor. He's gonna turn down the huge javelin for regular clothes, for a slingshot, and for five smooth stones, right? Regular clothes, a slingshot, and five smooth stones. Now, we talked a little bit last week about how important that slingshot is and the fact that that's actually part of the reason that David chose that. We think about a slingshot maybe as a bit of a child's toy, but in the way that David was using the slingshot, it was almost more like a shotgun. It was something that for bears and for wolves and all kinds of different um, animals that had come to, to threaten the life of the sheep that were in his care, it was gonna be really important that he be able to use that particular tool uh, to defend. It was also, imagine this, that the smooth stone, rather than the big javelin, the smooth stones were actually small enough to be able to get beneath and around the armor of Goliath. And so it ended up, what ended up being a very unconventional choice, ended up being a part of the reason why this particular battle between David and Goliath was almost over before it began. David would say it was over before it began because God um, had already given him everything that he needed uh, to be able to, to move forward in it. I, I'm blown away by this like notion of, of the slingshot and the stones and David choosing to use what he had because he believed that that's how God was gonna deliver him. I learned this week in a little bit of research that, um, you know, David had um, five stones. One of the reasons might have been um, that Goliath had four brothers. 
And so he thought it was quite possible that in defeating Goliath, that wasn't the end of the battle, that the four brothers might come after him and he might need to like sling those stones at, at them as well. So multiple stones could signify the fact that David, David was ready to face whatever he needed to face in that moment, whatever would come his way, because he genuinely believed that God was providing what was needed for him to be victorious, not for his own ego, not for his own well-being, his own sake, or his own career path, but, but solely because he wanted to defend God's name and he wanted to celebrate the gift um, of what exponential victory would look like on this particular battlefield against this particular giant that had said some really horrible things, not only about Israel, but also about the weakness of, of Israel's um, God. Uh, as I think about these things, there's another thing that like, I want us to be able to touch on, and I'll try to touch on it briefly, but I think it's a really important point. Um, it, it actually, let me take you to, to 1 Samuel 17. And here's a little bit about um, where we picked up uh, and kind of ended last week. Um, so beginning in verse 50. So David prevailed over the Philistine with the sling and the stone, striking down the Philistine and killing him. And there was no sword in David's hand. And this is where the part gets a little bit more than PG, but, but not um, extremely graphic. And then David ran and stood over the Philistine and he... And he grasped his sword and he drew it out of his sheath and he, and he killed them, uh, killed him. And then he cut, um, he cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw, when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Can we pause on this for just a moment? Because th this is uh, a part that I didn't want to mention last week. I wasn't trying to sell, sell the story short, but also realize that sometimes, friends, we'll bump into details in the stories of the scriptures that we don't always know exactly what to do with. Uh, somewhere where God will be attributing, like God will be attributed to something or God will be quoted in a particular way and we don't always know what to do with that stuff because some of it seems contradictory. This is where we get this really, I think it's a difficult notion. I think it's a um, problematic notion of the fact that somehow the Old Testament God and the New Testament God are different gods. It's almost like our God has multiple personalities uh, somehow. And so it could be the same God, but, but the Old Testament God really isn't the New Testament God. And actually in the story of the scripture, that's why it's all part of like one library that is um, 66 books in the library. It's actually telling the story of the same God. And also as Christians have been grafted into the, to the tree, uh, it's telling a story about the same people. It's why Adam and Eve aren't just Adam and Eve. They're, they're us. Like we're in that garden wrestling with our will over God's will. It's part of what connects us to that. I, I'm wondering if you ever have this temptation that I have sometimes where when I read a difficult part of a story, and in here it's the beheading, um, when I read a difficult part of a story, and it's kind of attributed to the fact that that's part of what is victorious about this story uh, is that David is gonna kind of do this thing. And, and it's kind of challenging. And I'm thinking, how do you explain that to, how do you explain that to children? Like, how do you explain that to us, to, to adults? 
And, and the truth of the matter is, we're always sometimes going to run into moments like that where we're not going to fully understand um, maybe the historical context. Maybe in this particular example, it's important for us to know that uh, in the in the, uh, the the Near East, this was actually a regular part of warfare. It was like part like the battle wasn't completed until this particular act was done. That's not really a part of our culture, but it was very much a part of of that culture. Maybe it was the fact that there would be a ton of people that would not believe what would have happened on that battlefield had just the story been told. And, and it's possible, right, that the Philistines would have even denied it because they would have been embarrassed or something of that nature. But, but somehow being able to have a, a part of Goliath to be able to tell that story in that context felt really important for, for these folks and actually was able to verify the truth about what had happened on that battlefield, even if other folks had tried to deny it. Like, like all kinds of stuff we could do with that particular part of this story. But, but I'm inviting you to think about this part of the story as um, an overall example of ways that we will bump into stories or parts of stories in the scriptures that we're not really sure what to do with. And we have two options when we do this. We can either um, like disregard the story because it has a detail that we're not really comfortable with and we're not really sure what to do with or we're not really sure how to verify. And so we're just gonna let the whole story go and pretend like it's not there. Or I'm gonna rather encourage you to lean in. I'm gonna encourage you to lean in with curiosity. I'm gonna encourage you to lean in to realize that, like, I, I don't know, does the scriptures ever make you guys uncomfortable? Do you guys ever get uncomfortable reading the scriptures? I'm gonna challenge you a little bit. If you're not uncomfortable reading the scriptures, you're not reading the scriptures. You're not reading the scriptures I'm reading. Because there's a lot of stuff that makes me uncomfortable. There's a lot of stuff that challenges me. There's a lot of stuff that I'm like, does God really want that from me? Like, how in the world am I gonna do that? How in the world are, are we gonna do that? I get faced with that kind of stuff all the time. And, and historically, in reading the Bible, I would have bumped into that kind of, uh, I would have bumped into that kind of detail and I, and I would have easily begun to try to explain it away how God really, God really couldn't have meant that. But friends, if we're willing to lean in and ask the bigger questions, Sometimes we realize that we're talking about a literal part of a story. Sometimes we realize we're talking about a symbolic part of a story that actually has some really important symbolism that really could be meaningful for us if we understood it and if we grabbed hold of it. I don't know about you guys, but like I'm really uncomfortable with the fact that I'm standing underneath, right? And I'm standing in front of two crosses, which are um, the primary symbol for first century death penalty execution. I mean, think about that with me for just a minute, will you? <clears throat> I, I mean, like we wear crosses around our necks as jewelry. We wear like crosses around our necks, uh, crosses around our, our, um, our wrists as, as a necklace or something of that nature. But, but what that cross stands for before it can stand for resurrection, before it can stand for the fact that it's empty, before it can be any of that, it's gotta be full. And what that full was, was a pretty unjust, shady system that led for our savior to be placed there um, in a way that um, was very compromising to him and very compromising to all of those that we're longing to follow him. Now, what we know now is that that was a really important part of the story and that somehow that had to happen so that like something like that, something horribly sinful and filled with death like that had to happen so that God could overwhelm 
sin and death with love and redeem us. Like, like salvation is, the very salvation story is not God saying, hey, like I'm gonna ignore all that sin and death stuff and just redeem you in another way. No, I'm gonna use the, the most gross example that I can possibly use of this really difficult and horrible thing that's gonna happen to Jesus. And in that, and because of that, I'm gonna flood and overwhelm sin and death with so much love that redemption has to happen on the other side of that event. And I want you to think about like who we would be if we hadn't had the gift and the blessing and the privilege of being able to realize that there is nothing in our life that we could possibly face that feels bigger than Jesus taking up this cross for each and every one of us. It's a difficult image. It's actually a gross image. If you read the gospels about the story, it, it should be horrifying to us. And at the very same time, it's the very core story of our salvation. I'm gonna encourage you not to, to pull away from the reality and the difficulty of that. I would encourage you to, to lean in, to lean in to realize um, that God did something big to do something even bigger. Remember in uh, week one of this particular series, we talked about the fact that, um, that everything in Jesus, everything in God is not just what it is on the surface, but it actually means something more because it's God leading us to our more. I, oh, I wanna invite you friends to, to lean in um, to sometimes what is the, the greatest challenge. I, I just offer this statement of transition to our, our sermon series that begins next week, Joy in the Morning. Um, I don't know, I think a lot of times, friends, I think we experience a bit of what feels like lost joy, that, that we have joy in our lives and we feel like somehow that's been taken away or that somehow that's been lost because of circumstances that, that we've encountered. And I just wanna remind you that not feeling a sense of joy doesn't mean that we're not people of victory. That, that joy is there whether we feel it or not because God's victory is there whether we know it or not. Because the king, right? The king is, is always, our king is always, always the last one standing. Can I invite you just to close your eyes with me for just a moment? Can I invite you to think about a chessboard? Can I think you? Can I invite you to think about um, like a chessboard that's been cleared out, except except one king still stands. The pawns have come and gone. The bishops and the rooks have come and gone. Because I invite you to think about that image in your heart and in your head. All these pieces have come and gone. Some of these pieces uh, got back on the board and still now are gone. But the king, the real king, the true king, the victorious king, not occasionally, not sometimes, not most of the time, but all the time, the king, our king, will be the last one standing. Oh God, we're grateful. We're grateful for all the things that you have stood up to that would on our own steam or on our own strength, it would have overwhelmed us. 
they would have kind of stolen our joy forever. They would have, you know, threatened to harm us. They would have actually harmed us. Like all kinds of different things that we encounter in our life, oh God, are way bigger than the strength that we feel like we could bring to them. But somehow, oh God, as we're able to bump into things that reveal your glory and reveal your will and reveal your way, truth, and life, we're mindful, oh God, that, that that is the story of victory. And that's a story of victory, whether we feel it or not. It's the, it's the story of joy about that victory, whether we know it or feel it or not. And oh God, we're just grateful for the way that, like David on that battlefield, feeling so um, overwhelmed by the circumstances and the odds, that the only reason that victory was possible was because of his trust in you to provide everything that was needed for your victory, O oh God, to be declared. We give you thanks, O oh God, that battles sometimes will be won and sometimes will be lost, but we give you thanks most of all, O oh God, um, that in this world and in this work that there will always be you, the king, who is always standing to have our back. And so, God, we're so grateful for that and pray that you would lead us by the power of your Holy Spirit and that you would equip us for every good work that we're called to do in your name. It's in the strong and precious name of Christ we pray and all God's people said, amen. Thanks for joining the Long's Chapel Message Podcast. If you connected in any way with us via this podcast, we invite you to connect further by either leaving a rating and review down below or contacting us via our church website at longschapel.com. Here at Long's Chapel, we believe in worshiping and serving God by reaching people and growing together as passionate followers of Jesus Christ because all people matter to God. See you next week.